think about our emotions. And yet, they're an incredibly important topic for all of us. Everyone has emotions. We're all made in the image of a God who expresses emotions. And everyone wrestles with emotions. We all have to wrestle with the emotions of others as well. I mean, this is an incredibly important topic. And we want to know what the Bible, what God's Word has to say to us. Now, last week we began by talking about understanding our emotions, the role that they play in our lives. We saw that emotions communicate value. They tell us what is important to us. Emotions help us to connect. Emotions motivate us. They move us to action. And emotions turn us towards God. This week, we're going to be talking about engaging our emotions. It's not enough to just know what our emotions do. We need to know how to handle them, how to navigate them, how to deal with them, how to bring them to God. This is what we're going to be talking about today and really for the rest of the series. Now, let me be very clear right from the beginning. This process of engaging with our emotions is not quick, it's not simple, and it's not easy. I wish there was a secret or a formula that I could give you, but there's not. I mean, this is not how God has chosen to help us to engage with our emotions. And the journey towards spiritual maturity, the journey towards emotional health, it is a lifelong journey with lots of ups and lots of downs. And wherever you are on that journey, whether you're up, whether you're down, whether you're in between, I always find great truth, great comfort, sorry, in the truth of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says, I am sure of this. In other words, I am certain about this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, God will finish what he has started in your life. Even if the road ahead of you looks very dark, even if the road ahead of you looks uncertain, God holds you and God will not let you go. This is a very encouraging truth as we begin to think about our emotional lives. Now today, as we continue this journey, we're going to be looking at Psalm 62 and, and what it tells us about how to engage with our emotions. But before we get there, before we look at what we should do, it's important for us to recognize, to know, to understand what we shouldn't do. Because when it comes to our emotions, there are two main errors which we are prone to making. There are two pitfalls which we tend to fall into, two extremes that we often swing to. And the first error, the first extreme is this. It's to say that emotions are everything. Emotions are everything. Now, I think we would agree that in our day, this is the loudest voice in the room, that we are told regularly and in lots of different ways that the most important thing about us the thing that most defines us is our emotions. It's what we feel on the inside. You know, I'm reading a book at the moment called Be True to Yourself by a pastor named Matt Fuller in the UK. And he says that the main pursuit of many people in our day is to find myself, be myself, express myself, no matter what other people may think. In other words, you need to be true to yourself. 
That's the way to be happy. It's an idea that is posted on social media, expressed in ads, celebrated in songs, taught in schools, and quietly believed in churches. And I think he's right. I think this is the spirit of our day, that we need to discover who we are on the inside. We we need to get in touch with our, our inner feelings. We need to find ourselves, express ourselves, be ourselves. And so the question that we need to ask is, are our emotions, are our feelings really the most important thing about us? Now, we're doing an entire sermon series on emotions, so we obviously think that they are important. And the Word of God says they're important, but are they the most important? Now, I mentioned the book Untangling Emotions last week, and this is what the authors Alistair Groves and Winston Smith say in response to this question. They say, to place your feelings ahead of the quality of your character, ahead of the faithfulness of your obedience to God, ahead of the depth of your relationship with God and others, even to place your feelings ahead of the feelings of others, is the opposite of what Scripture calls us to. In other words, there are some things in life that are more important than our emotions, that are more fundamental than our feelings. And this, I think, is a a challenging but a very important correction not just for for our culture at large, but I think even for the church as well. The church can at times be guilty of elevating emotions too highly. One example where you see this at play is when people evaluate Sunday worship according to how it made them feel. I didn't feel encouraged or convicted by the sermon. I didn't feel moved by the songs. I didn't feel welcomed after the service. Let me be very clear, there is absolutely nothing wrong with feeling on a Sunday. I mean, we should be feeling, we should be seeking to enjoy and to experience God. We should rejoice when a sermon or a song moves us and draws us closer to God. But the point of a worship service is not our feelings. The point of a worship service is the one being worshipped. You know, Alistair Begg is a a pastor and an author. Maybe some of you have heard of him before. He's a Scotsman. He's got a great accent. He he moved to America where he pastors a church. And he says once, he he visited another church, and he says the opening line of the service, the first thing that was said by the worship leader was, how do you all feel this morning? Now, I'm sure it was just an innocent remark. I'm sure the worship leader hadn't really, you know, thought about it very much. But Begg makes an important point when he goes on to say, this is not the most helpful way to open a worship service. Because what truly matters when we come to worship, it's not how we feel about God and ourselves, it's what we know to be true about God and His Word. Our feelings are up and down and all over the place. We walk in here on a Sunday morning probably feeling distracted disappointed, angry, upset, and a hundred other things. And what we need is the solid rock of God and His Word, the unchanging truth of the gospel. That's what we need when we come to worship, to find solid ground to stand upon. And so our emotions are incredibly important. But they're not the most important thing about us. 
And the first error when it comes to our emotions is to say emotions are everything. But the other extreme that we often swing to is to say then that emotions are nothing. If the first error is hyper-emotionalism, then the second error is stoicism. It is stiff upper lip-ism. I just made that up. It's to say that emotions are not to be trusted. They need to be pushed down and, and pushed aside. Now, this error is probably not as common in our uh, culture today, but it is, I think, still quite common in the church. Like I mentioned last week, Christians can have a complicated relationship with emotions. We can feel bad for feeling bad. And we can even feel bad for feeling good. We can assume negative emotions are a sign of spiritual failure. And so we tend to deny, to suppress, to ignore our emotions. We can even create the unspoken assumption that church is a place where only good feelings are allowed. Now, this can have devastating consequences. I heard a story uh, this week about one particular, particular lady. She was in her early 30s when her only child died. She was not yet three years old and, and uh, her little daughter passed away from cancer. Surely one of the most horrific experiences that anyone can go through. And while many people in her church expressed sorrow and, and sympathy and compassion, she also spoke about the perceived pressure, in her own words, to be in church the next Sunday with a smile on so that everyone could see how good God is when life is hard. Now, was she exaggerating that, that, that perceived pressure? Maybe. We hope so. But whether she's exaggerating or not, this kind of thinking can insidiously sneak into the church. The church is a place where we always have to have a, a smile on our face, where we always have to, to feel good and be joyful. And it's just not true. It's not faithful to the Bible. The Bible expects us or leads us to expect dark emotions, and it invites us to be honest about them. As uh, Groves and Smith put it in their book, they say, instead of fighting dark feelings simply because they feel bad, we must carve out room in our theology for sadness, fear, anger, guilt, shame, dismay, and the like. Without them, our faith becomes lopsided. A car with wheels on only one side grinding and scraping along, veering constantly off the road God's Word would keep us on. God doesn't want us to squash or avoid our emotions, as Christians often suppose, nor does He call on us to embrace our emotions unconditionally, as our culture often urges us. No, God has something better for you and for me. God calls on us to engage our emotions. Not to avoid, not to embrace, but to engage. To take our emotions seriously without giving them the keys to our lives. And the question is, well, what does this actually look like? How do we do this in our day-to-day -day lives? I mean, it would be nice if God gave us just a series of steps that we could follow. A manual. But he doesn't. He gives us something deeper. He gives us something more meaningful. He gives us the invitation to come to him unfiltered with all our feelings. To engage our emotions by bringing them to him. 
This is really the big idea of the sermon. Engaging our emotions means engaging God. And we really see this all throughout the Bible, but we see it, I think, especially in Psalm 62. Psalm 62 shows us how we can engage our emotions in day-to-day life. Now, let me give you some context. Psalm 62, Tim Keller calls it a psalm for the stressed. Because if you look at it, you'll see that David is in trouble. He is surrounded by enemies, verses 3 to 4. They assault him. They want to topple him. They lie about him. They curse him behind his back. And so David was probably feeling all kinds of things. Stressed, angry, anxious, confused, disappointed. And the question is, what does he do in response? Where does he turn in this time of trouble? And you see it there in Psalm 62. He turns to God. God is his rock, his fortress, his salvation. He turns to God and he says, my soul finds rest. And he invites you and I to do the same. Look at what he says there in verse 8. He says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. This verse is in the Bible because it's an invitation for us to bring our emotions to God, to turn to him. And this verse can teach us some, I think, very important truths. Let's take it in three steps as we just look at the three phrases of Psalm 62, verse 8. Firstly, David says, trust in him at all times, you people. Now, what does it mean to trust? Well, it means to rely on something totally, to put all your confidence in something or someone You know, I remember when I was growing up, I would sometimes go down to Young's Crossing Road, to the waterhole next to the road there. And there was a tree that hung out over the creek. It might still be there today. I haven't been there recently. But there was also a rope swing that was attached to that tree. Now, the rope swing didn't look very good at the best of times. It was basically a stick attached to a piece of rope. But I would put my trust in that rope swing. I would put all my weight on it and swing out and launch myself into the water. Now that's a picture of trust. This is what it means to trust God, to place all our weight on Him, to rely on Him, to put our confidence in Him. And not just when the sun is shining. Not just when life is good. You notice David didn't say, trust in Him when life is going well. He says, trust in him at all times. Even, I would say, especially when life gets dark. When life is difficult. When we face a difficult boss at work. When we have a devastating diagnosis. A a damaged relationship. And a thousand other difficulties that we go through in life. We are called to put our trust in God. Now the question is, what does this look like? How do we do this? And David shows us in the second phrase of this verse. He says, what it looks like for us to trust God, he says, pour out your hearts to him. Now, we very rarely pour out our hearts to anyone. It's far too personal. But this is the path to reality with God. This is the path to a real relationship with God. 
Whatever we're going through, whatever we're feeling, we bring it to God. Whether it's our negative emotions, whether it's our positive emotions, we can pour it all out to Him. Now, why can we do this? The answer is because God has poured Himself out for us. You know this verb, pour out here in Psalm 62, it's the same verb that's used in the prophecy of Joel 2, where God promised to pour out His Spirit on us. See, we can pour out our hearts to God because God has poured His Spirit into our hearts. He's all in, and so we can be all in as well. Again, what does this look like in day-to-day life? What does this mean tomorrow on Monday? Well, it means that we don't relegate our relationship to God simply when we're reading the Bible or when we're at church. It means we walk with God moment by moment through the ups and the downs of our days. When we have an argument with our spouse, we turn to God with our anger and our frustration and our disappointment. We say, God, please help me to forgive. Help me to ask for forgiveness. When you feel nervous about starting uni or or TAFE or a new job, you say, God, I'm feeling really nervous about this. Would you calm my heart? When you feel lonely because your family don't don't visit you as often as you'd like, you, you take it to God and you ask for his presence and his comfort. When you hear that your child has has bullied another child or has stolen something, you take all of your emotions to God. Your fear about your child's future, your shame for how this reflects on you as a parent, your sadness at what your child must be feeling, your annoyance at having to deal with this, you bring it all to God and you ask for his wisdom. You see, to pour out our hearts, it doesn't necessarily mean that we will be visibly emotional, that we'll cry and yell and and whatnot. It simply means that we'll be honest with God about all that is going on in our hearts and our lives. And you know, even Jesus did this. We see this especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he's going to the cross and Jesus says, "Listen, listen to this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Now, I wonder if if you've been in a place of sorrow that deep. And what does Jesus do? How does he handle it? He doesn't pull out an extra bottle of wine from the Last Supper to take the edge off. He doesn't detach himself. He doesn't distract himself. He doesn't even recite his favorite Bible verses. He does two very simple, very relational things. He speaks honestly to his friends about the sorrow that he's feeling. He invites them to support him, to pray with him. And he speaks honestly to God about all that he's feeling. He pours out his heart to his father. And listen, if Jesus needed to do this, how much more do you and I? And the good news is that we can do this confidently. We we can turn to God without fear, because as David goes on to tell us in the final phrase of verse 8, God is our refuge. Now, a refuge is a safe place, a place of security and protection and rest. It's coming home after a long and difficult day. If you're a child, it's the arms of mum and dad. If you're a nerd, it's Rivendell in Lord of the Rings. 
It's a place of security, protection, rest, and God is the ultimate refuge, the ultimate safe place in the cosmos. I mean, this is the same promise that we're given in 1 Peter chapter 5. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Listen to what the Bible says. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. The God of the universe cares about you. When you turn to him, he takes you under his arm and he says, it's going to be okay. I won't let you go. God is the ultimate, the only safe place, refuge in the cosmos. You can turn to him and you can trust him. And this is really important because you're not going to turn to someone that you don't trust. I mean, this is true in our relationship with other people. And it's true in our relationship with God as well. So the question is, do you trust God? Now, if we're being really honest, many of us would say with our lips that we do, but if we looked at our lives and, and our hearts, the answer might be different. We might discover that we're holding back from God more than we're pouring out our hearts to God. And it might be for many different reasons. We might think that God isn't interested in us. He's not interested in what, what's going on in my life and in my heart. It might be that we believe God is against us. Life might be going smoothly, but we're just waiting for the hammer to drop. Maybe we feel like we're second-class citizens in God's kingdom. You know, if God really did care for us and really did love us, He'd give us the the wife, the husband, the house, the job that He seems to give to everyone else. Or or the level of intimacy and the depth of relationship that, that other believers seem to have. Whatever the reason might be, we tend to hold back from God because... We sometimes believe that God is holding back from us. But the gospel tells us something very, very different. The message of the Bible tells us something very, very different. Romans 8 verse 32 puts it beautifully. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? When you look to Jesus, you can know with absolute certainty that God has held nothing back from you. That God has given everything for you, even his own precious son, to make you his own. And so why would we hold ourselves back from such love as this? Here's the way Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor from the 1800s, put it. He said, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the ocean caves? Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. This is how we can pour our hearts out to God. This is how we can trust him because he is our refuge. He has held nothing back from us. And when we turn to him, there are unfathomable oceans of grace that we get a glimpse of in this life and that we will rejoice in for eternity to come. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him for God is our refuge.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have held nothing back from us. Not even your own son. So Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to look to all that you've done for us in him. And Lord, where we are walking through some difficult valleys right now, we ask that your spirit might be our comforter and our guide. We pray, Lord, that where we have been closed off to you, we might begin to open ourselves up to you. We might begin to do what your word calls us to do, invites us to do, to pour out our hearts to you. You know, you understand, and you care. And so, Lord, help us today and all our days to turn our hearts and our minds upon you. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you, Father. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand for this closing blessing before we sing together? May God be by your side, even in the darkest valley. May Christ Jesus be the cornerstone of your life. And may the Holy Spirit abide in you and lead you into love and mercy all the days of your life. Amen.